Do you ever find yourself thinking, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm definitely a a Christian, I've I've come to Christ, and uh, I have this standard for how I'm supposed to live. And uh, boy, is it a tall standard. I see all these instructions in the New Testament, all those one another's that Eric taught us about, and um, all of these ways we're supposed to shepherd our heart when our expectations aren't met. And you think, man, that's a tall order. This is beyond me. It's what, um, what is way beyond me, and I am not up to this task. I feel like that all the time. I feel like that uh, the last couple of weeks as I'm waiting for my bathroom remodel to keep moving forward. Um, I'm just waiting and waiting. I'm feeling like my patience is being tried and I'm digesting these large estimates and um, trying to shepherd my heart well in in accomplishing that. Um, Anyway, all that to say that the Christian walk is a hard walk. It's very, very hard. And uh, what's what's particularly hard for us is to... um, run from sin and to turn from sin when sin's in front of us. And what we have in front of us here in Romans 6 is a boatload of principles that can help us um, in our fight against that. And all of this is in our mind, first and foremost, things we need to understand. What I want to do with you is just help you see, if you can see this, can you guys see the little black dots that are on here? I hope you can see Nick, can you confirm there's black dots on here? There are black dots. <laughs> Lots of little black dots. Okay. It's not the sleep in my eyes. Right. Okay. It's not smudge marks. Um, each one of those little black dots, there's probably one on each verse. One or two on each verse through verse 10. And then there's some other different kind of black dots starting in verse 11 um, because of there. And what those little black dots are, are things that Smed refers to as grace truths or grace realities. And what these things are, are truths about us in our new relationship to sin. Romans chapter 6 is all about the Christian's new relationship to sin. So each one of us knows that we're in a born-again condition. We're in a mixed condition now where we used to be unmixed. And what I want to do is just walk through some of these grace realities that help us when we run into the life that God has in front of us this week. Um, When we run into challenges at work, when we run into challenges outside of work, at home, financial challenges, relationship challenges, there are a ton of principles here that will help us think about how we can respond. And what they're all about is what God has already done for us. And uh, this is probably the most marked up passage in my Bible because I need to see these. And it's really hard for me to think this way unless I keep these principles in front of me. So what I want to do is just go through some of these and help you see them. I'm going to be using the NAS, but if you have the ESV or another translation, that is A-OK. Some of the words will be a little bit different, but the, the meaning is the same. So I'm sitting there and I'm asking myself, okay, I need to live I need to live a new life. And when sin is in front of me, it's really, really hard. So I'm reading along. I read chapter 6, verse 1, and I read, are we supposed to continue in sin? Wow, I don't know. Am I supposed to continue in sin? Well, verse 2 and following helps me understand what I have going for me as a believer that will lead me away from sin. Um, verse 2 tells me that I have died to sin. What that means is I've not died to the experience of sin, but I've died to the rule of sin over me. So when I remember just the principle that I have died to sin's rule over me, that helps me. Um, Verse 3 tells me that I've been baptized or united with Christ in his death. That Christ died, and as as he died, I've died to sin's mastery over me. Verse 4 tells me that I've been buried with him through baptism into death. And this is part that's really, really significant to me. 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that's speaking of his resurrection, I too have the ability to walk in newness of life. I believe in the resurrection. I believe it happened. We just celebrated that last week, right? And uh, that actually, what is so great about that is that that gives me the ability to walk in newness of life. And that means not respond to sin opportunities the way that I used to. Verse 5 tells me again, I've been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, and because of that, I'll also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. That speaks again to my ability to walk in a new way of living. Verse 6 tells me that my old self has been crucified with Christ in order that my body of sin might be done away with. That's talking about the unmixed former condition that I was in. I'm not in that condition anymore. I forget that so often. When the world comes at me really fast, it's easy for me to begin thinking like the world. But verse 6 here tells me I don't need to think like the world because I'm no longer in that state. And verse 7 tells me that I'm free from sin. I'm free from its mastery and its rule over me. And verse 8 again says we've tells us and reminds us that we've been died with that we have died with Christ, and because of that we will live with him. That talks about a future life with Christ. That's the target that we're all aiming for. When I keep that in front of me, I think much, much differently about sin opportunities, knowing that when I'm going to live with Christ eternally, I'm going to be in a state where there is no more sin. And so then in verse 9, the, the ultimate sentence that really helps me and the ultimate blessing that helps me is that death is no longer mastery over me. No longer am I a slave to sin, but death isn't a master over me. And so I don't have to obey its appeal. I don't have to obey its allure and its enticements because I have the ability to walk away from it. But what you notice there is that those are all these truths that are there. There's probably one or two for each verse in the first ten verses of chapter 6. But then you see the instructions coming in verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. The instruction there in verse 11 is consider yourself to be dead to sin. Consider yourself to be dead to sin's rule, sin's pull, sin's allure on you. So when sin presents itself to you, our first response should be, I am no longer of the condition where this is super appealing to me anymore. This is not the, I'm not the kind of person where this rules over me and draws me the way it used to. Therefore, because of that, because of those truths, I now have the ability and I must obey the command in verse 12 to not let sin reign over me. In verse 13, it's very, very practical. Don't go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Instead, the back half of this verse is really good. Present yourself to God. So when we have an opportunity in front of us to indulge our flesh, indulge our mind in sinful thinking, or anything like that, the back half of verse 12 helps us. Sorry, verse 13 helps us. Lord, I want to present myself to you as one who is now alive from the dead. I'm now alive in Christ. And uh, my members are now instruments of righteousness. You've given me these hands. You've given me these feet. You've given me this mouth, these eyes, these ears to be used by you and your purposes. Verse 14, sin shall not be master over you for you're not under law, but under grace. There's a lot to be said there. But all I wanted to share with you guys this morning is it is really, really good to think this way. Um, If you're not in the practice of at least thinking through this or reading through this on a somewhat of a regular or a frequent basis. Consider doing that. Consider refreshing your mind with the truths about who you are so that when sin comes to you, which it will, because the the enemy is very cunning and he's very 
careful and he's very skilled. Um, we are fortified and we're ready and we're prepared to respond the way a believer can respond to sin opportunities. It's by saying, this is not a master over me. God has always provided me a way out and I need to grow in my ability to find that way out and run to that door and into fellowship with Christ. So I hope that's an encouragement to you guys as you think about how you shepherd your heart. In the morning when you're praying, you might want to make this a part of your prayer life for a while or regularly or on some kind of regular basis. Um, And that will strengthen you in your conversations. That will strengthen you in your home. That will strengthen you in your workplace and the store and the airport and every place else. So, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to break into our small groups. 1 Timothy 3 is where we're at this morning, looking at the fourth discipline in build, the qualifications. There are two sets of qualifications, one for elder and one for deacon. Uh, We're looking at the elders today. And only in 1 Timothy 3, there's another complementary list of elders in Titus 1. Um, But because we recently preached through Titus, I've been kind of focusing on 1 Timothy If you weren't here when we went through Titus and did that, sorry, uh, but you can get it online if you want. But we're focusing on just 1 Timothy 3 today. We'll make some reference to Titus 1 a little bit. But um, as as we get started here, um, focusing on discipline 1, on your heart, on your inner self before God in his word, that's a, that's, that's a good thing and a wise thing to do for, regardless of what kind of man you are in the church. All men in the church should do that. Discipline two, uh, stepping into your household and caring for your household relationships. Um, making sure that there's a gospel aroma in your home uh, with your wife, with your children, with your roommates, with your brothers and you know, sisters, whoever. That's good for every man in the church to do. Um, Regardless of what he is, regardless of what he becomes. Um, Focusing on the third discipline, your ministry. You know, how you interact with people with the truth, with the gospel. How do you care for people with the gospel? Every man in the church needs to focus on those things. And that's right and that's good for every man in the church. And focusing on discipline one, discipline two, and discipline three might be exactly what God would use to take some men... And qualify them for elder leadership. Because if you look at this list in 1 Timothy 3, every single one of these qualifications falls into one of three categories. What is the man like before God? What's, his, what's he like at the heart level? What's he like in his household? Talks about marriage. Talks about uh, being able to manage his own household well. And, or thirdly, what's he like with people? What's his character? Is he, is, is he a striker? Does he hit people to solve problems? Um, as an example. So you see these qu- character qualifications really fall into the first three disciplines. <laughs> which is why in Build, even though this is not an elder training ground, guess what? It's elder training ground. But it's good for all men. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. But... Let's take a look at verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read it, we'll pray, and then we'll just jump right in, okay? 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, 
hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray and then we'll jump into this. Father in heaven, thank you for all of your words in your Bible. All of them are there that we might um, draw near to you, to meet with you, and to allow you to instruct us. Lord, we pray for that this morning specifically as we look at a section of your word that deals with qualifications for elders in a church. Pray that we would understand it, that we would embrace it, that we would align our hearts and our minds with it, that it would help us to understand more, um, even at Grace Bible Church, how we think about eldering. So use this on multiple levels, Lord. Use it to even help us to become more above reproach in our Christian living, all of us, whether we are elder or not. So, Father, help us by your grace to live beyond the criticism that can stick to us. Oh, we need you for that because um, we sin and we will sin today. We already have. Um, we need your grace over us and in us, supplying every strength that we need to live a life that's pleasing to you. Help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you can see in your notes there, what we're going to do is we're basically going to take this uh, some words at a time, some phrases at a time. Um, in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. That means you can count on this. Um, and we're going to start with the word overseer. Um, there's a family of words that you need to put together with this. There's overseer, there's the word elder, and there's the word pastor. Those are three terms in the New Testament that essentially mean the same person. Okay? An elder is an overseer who is a pastor. Okay? Now, that may not be the way that your church experience has gone. That in a church, an elder is not necessarily what a pastor is. It's not necessarily who the overseer is. Um, but you're going to see here in just a moment that these, all, these three words all refer to the same person. Okay? The same type of office. Um, you can see the word overseer in verse 1. It's also in verse 2. It literally means just to watch over. Um, if I said the word to you in Greek, episkopos, it might sound like episcopal. Uh, you might hear that in, in regards to the Episcopal Church. It, episkopos. It means to watch over something. Uh, and he watches over or he sees over the church. He oversees the, the church. Um, in the same letter, if you turn to chapter 5, verse 17... Paul says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. So here you have the word for um, the other denomination, pres Presbyterian, Presbyteros. It's, the, it's a, an older um, office, a man uh, originally thought of as older in, in age, but not necessarily constrained to that meaning anymore. But it just means an, an elder. He's mentioned in verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now turn over to Titus chapter 1 for just a moment. Just a few pages to the right. And I want you to see what Paul does. The same writer, right? Paul. 
I want you to see what he does in verses 5 and 7 for the, of chapter 1. For this reason, Tim, uh, Titus, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach. Okay, so wait a minute. He was talking about elders in verse 5, and then all of a sudden he started saying that the, it's the overseers who need to be above reproach. Um, which, which one is he talking about? And the point is what? An overseer is an elder. And an elder is an overseer. In Paul's mind, there's no difference between them. Okay? There's one more um, key word, and that's the word pastor. You can see it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. <coughs> Ephesians 4, 11. And he, Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. It's the word for shepherd. Okay? So those are three terms that Paul uses interchangeably to refer to the same person. Now, I'm going to show you a, a, another passage, one more passage, where all three of them are put together. Okay? In one. Turn to Acts chapter 20. And again, it is Paul meeting with the elders um, from Ephesus at the end of his third missionary journey. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, and then we'll look at verse 28. So Paul called, he, he's, he stops in Miletus, which is the port city for Ephesus. He doesn't want to go all the way into the city of Ephesus. He says, go get the elders at the church at Ephesus. Paul had just spent almost three years there. And he wants the elders to, to come to the port city to meet with him because he just doesn't want to get snagged in Ephesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Okay? So verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to the church and called to him the elders of the church. And then the, what follows from the rest there is one of the most descriptive passages of what Paul thought about the church and what he thought about elders. Now, drop down to verse 28. He's talking to the elders. Now, watch this. Be on guard for yourselves, elders. Right? That's who he's talking to. And be on guard for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. So you elders, I'm talking to you. The Spirit made you overseers. Now watch this. To do what? To shepherd, which is the word to pastor. To pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So if you want to write something down, here's a really simple sentence that puts it all together, if you want, just to gather these terms together. The elders are overseers who pastor the church. The elders are overseers who pastor the church. You can take those three terms and switch it any way you want. The pastors are elders who oversee the church, right? The overseers are pastors who elder the church. You can take those three terms and move them however way you want. Um, that's what we believe at Grace Bible Church in regards to elders. Uh, pastors are not the paid guys and the elders are the guys who aren't paid. Um, Scott is a pastor. Right. I'm an elder. I get paid, but, but he's not paid. Um, but we're pastor elders, and so on our websites, pastor elder, that's just what we go by. And it's very confusing if you've been to other churches. And that's, and, you know, look, there, there, there's some flexibility in how churches want to name their they're, they're men who are in the office of eldering. There's some flexibility there. Um, 
But a senior pastor, uh, a lead pastor, we, we try to just stay away from that terminology because it, what, it, what it does for the rest of the elders or what it doesn't do for the rest of the elders. Now, the guy who's up front, if it's smed for you know four months, six months preaching through Ecclesiastes, people who come and visit probably view him as what? He's the senior pastor or he's the lead pastor. He's the, and, and so what that guy does whenever he's in that position, he's constantly taking himself and he's trying to push himself down. While at the same time, he's trying to take the rest of the elders in the eyes of people and do what? Lift them up. Okay? I, I get this all the time when I'm the one who's preaching. People will come talk to me because they believe I'm the guy running the show. And I'm very quick to try to say, I'm not. I'm one of many. I'm, I'm one of the pastors. There are six other pastors. And we're just always working that way to help that. Okay, so that's a side note. You got that for free. That's not really a part of it. Let's go back to uh, 1 Timothy 3. But if you get me or any one of our elders going on that hobby horse, we'll ride it for as long as we can. Okay? Um, there's just a protection in that. There's just a protection. And this church suffered in its early days because it didn't have that view. If one guy is the guy and that guy takes a hit, um, the church is wiped out. Okay? And he says in verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work. So the overseer, that office, has work to do. It involves a task. And you know what that task is because Acts chapter 20 already told us that. It's shepherding. It's pastoring. It's overseeing the flock. It's caring for others as they grow toward Christ. It's caring for others as they grow in their Christ-likeness. It's caring for others, as even Scott this morning shared with you, about how to stay away from sin. That's what overseeing is. That's what pastoring is. We're helping people become like Christ. We're helping people to stay away from sin. Believers stay away from sin. And that is a fine work. The word means excellent work. It's noble work. It's good work. It's worthwhile work. There's nothing that's more precious to God than the church that his son shed his blood for to make, to purchase. And so caring for those sheep, that's a fine work. That's excellent work. That's noble work. That's worthwhile, good work to desire. Now let's talk about the two words aspires in the NAS and desires. I'm not sure what the ESV does or other translations, but there are two desire words in verse 1. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Let's talk about that. Paul here acknowledges that men in the church will experience inward desire or aspiration for the office, for the work of eldering. Now, what if the verse, what if the qualification list just ended there? There wasn't verse two to seven. If any man aspires to the office, it's a fine work he desires. How would the church measure who's qualified? Well, who's, yeah, who wants it? Who's, who, who's got the desire? Men who don't have the desire shouldn't be elders. Men who do have the desire should be elders. Um, Paul would be, then be saying that all that matters is desire or aspiration. And the church would just have to make their selection based on the desire of a man. But Paul then provides instead for us what? Six more verses to help the church understand what true aspiration is, what true Holy Spirit-given desire is for the office of overseer and what it looks like. So the Holy Spirit will indeed give to men the desire. 
to shepherd the flock. But that same spirit who wrote through Paul tells us what the qualifications are to look for in a man that will affirm the desire that he gave to them. Um, Listen, desire is very, very important. You wouldn't want a man to shepherd the flock who really didn't want to be there, right? I mean, the man needs to aspire and desire it. There's no doubt about it. But desire isn't everything. And that's where churches can get into trouble um, by just looking and paying attention to desire. Desire must have accompanying it moral character qualification, okay? Desire is tested against character qualification. Desire is affirmed and proven by character qualification. Now, to show you how um, strong this word aspires is, turn over to uh, chapter 6, verse 10, real quick. I want you to see this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, that's the same verb, some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What kind of, how strong is that word? Man, it's strong. And now what you're finding is, depending on its context, it can either be a very good, strong desire for the office, or it can be a very, very bad, strong desire for something like a longing for money. Such a longing that you would wander away from the faith. So context determines its goodness. The same is true for the word desires. It's, it's the word that in some contexts can be used for um, lusting. Um, it's just a strong word, and context determines whether it's good or evil. So when you think of the Holy Spirit making men overseers of the church, that was Acts 20, verse 28, you shouldn't be surprised that the desire within those men would be a strong one. Why, if the Spirit was leading men to become elders of the church, and they were kind of like, eh, I can take it or leave it. I mean, that doesn't reflect well on the spirit. I mean, when the spirit is leading a man to that, it's a strong desire that he has, but it has to be a, it has to be that, look, desire gets out of control if character is not what it needs to be, right? They need to be men of character. So let's talk about that. Verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach. Being above reproach, that's the banner or the umbrella qualification that is over all of the other ones underneath it. The way that you measure whether a person is above reproach is through the specifics of the qualifications that follow. Okay, What does it mean to be above reproach? It means to be free from any offense that could stick. It is to be free from any disgraceful blight of character that might stick on the man. Um, particularly described in verses 2 to 7. Okay? An accusation can't stick to the man. Listen, people are going to be able to throw an accusation at you all the time in life because you sin. I don't think you spoke in a way that was really kind. I, was, I heard what you said that wasn't kind. And an elder might do that. The question is, does it stick in terms of a lasting character quality of the man? Um, This is the idea of being beyond the reproach. uh, An accusation is thrown, but you live beyond it. The stone can't reach you. Um, It's not perfection, but it means that you are exemplary. Okay? By the way, write down Philippians 2.15 and turn over there real quick. I want you to see this. Just 
just a few pages back to the left. Philippians 2, verse 15. We'll start back at verse 14, actually. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be, watch these words, church. Church, uh, you'll uh, prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God. Above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Is he writing to elders there? Well, he's writing to the church and the elders there. But he's writing to the church body. Christians are to be blameless. Christians are to be innocent. Christians are to be above reproach. And so an elder is to be above reproach. So what's the difference? How is an elder's being above reproach different than your being above reproach? It's that an elder's being above reproach is an exemplary above reproach for you to follow as you try to be above reproach. I think that's probably the easiest way to understand that is everything you see in this list, you're called to be, except maybe one thing, and we'll talk about that. So what's the difference between you being peaceable and an elder being peaceable? What's the difference between you being gentle and an elder being gentle? An elder is to be exemplary in it for you. Okay? I think that's the easiest way to understand that. Um, One author says, it's critically important for an elder to be above reproach Everyone will assume at least two things once he has made an elder. One, he's an example to all the sheep in all areas of life. And two, that he will receive the benefit of the doubt against uncorroborated allegations of wrongdoing. If somebody says, hey, did you, did you, do you know about Tom Angston? The first thing that's going to pop in most people's mind is Tom gets the benefit of the doubt until this is proven otherwise. And that's right. But all the more reason for Tom to be above reproach until it can be investigated. A few things are, uh, he goes on to say, a few things are worse for a church than having a man who lacks good character be able to set a bad example while also being shielded by generosity of judgment that comes with the office. See, an elder is above criticism. He needs to be above it, simply out of the reach of criticism. He's a man who's marred by no disgrace. Now, let me, let's me let talk about this for a second. This is really important. You could apply this to any and all the other qualification. Who gets to determine if a man is above reproach in a church family? Have you ever thought about that? Who gets to determine if a man is above reproach? If a man says, I'm above reproach, is that all that we need? No, you cannot self-declare yourself. You might believe that you are, but you do not get to self-declare yourself such. And that's it. And the rest of the people around you just have to take your word for it. Um, this qualification, along with all of the others, actually think on this. It rests in the eyes of the beholders. And there is no one on earth who has perfect perception of you. Have you ever thought about this? The only one who has perfect perception of any man in the church is God. And he is not here at our church like you and I are here at our church. He's he's not physically here to be able to... He's not going around and stamping on men's heads an E. The mark of elder. Like the mark of Cain or whatever that was. Uh, 
He's not doing that so that we know. Instead, what God has chosen to do in his wisdom is entrust to the church to imperfect perception. He leaves it in the eyes of the beholders to determine if a man is qualified, is above reproach. That's the first thing I, w- I tell guys who are thinking about wanting to be an elder, one of the first things we talk about is this. You, how do you feel about that? Because some guys think, well, what if they don't, what if they, what if they don't know me? They don't know my heart. Yeah, exactly. And go, you, did you think God knew that? This is exactly the way God's done that. He has left to imperfect perception the decision to determine if I'm above reproach. And I'm not above reproach until men with imperfect perception of me are unified in agreement that I am. It's just an interesting way to think about it. God in his wisdom left it that way. His design is to work through the imperfect perceptions of others to confirm the qualification of a man. And you need to be okay with that. Um, That's the way he left it. Okay, so then specifically, what does it mean? Verse 2, the husband of one wife. Literally, one woman man. That's what it means. A one woman man. The husband of one wife. This is first on both lists in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3. And this was a problem. It was a concern in the early church. The uh, the believers there who are mostly Gentile, they came out of a very heavy pagan life where sexual immorality was rampant uh, of the worst possible kinds. And the elder had to be a man who stood out in stark and, and clear enough from that in order to be exemplary for the rest of the believers. One woman man was Paul's way of describing that kind of man who stood out and apart from the rest. The description is about much, much more than how many wives does he have. Paul's not going around saying, wait a minute, how many wives do you have? Oh, you only have one? You're, you, you're qualified. You could be an elder. That's not what he's trying to get at. However, um, polygamy is quickly ruled out, obviously, right? Um, the man's sexual moral life is devoted to, is committed to one woman. That's what Paul's saying. He's committed sexually, romantically to one woman only. That's the kind of pure man that he is. Can a single man be that way? Can a single man be a one woman man? Yeah. You just don't know who the woman is yet. But whoever she is, whenever she comes on the scene, he is living himself, living in such a way that he is devoted sexually to only one in the context of marriage when it comes. So in one sense, Paul is obviously not ruling out um, a single man from being married. He's just acknowledging that most men in the church will be married men. Um, He'll be pure in his marriage and exemplary for others in it, whether he's married or one day if he is married. Um, So he is to be a one-woman man in the sense that he's completely satisfied to romance one woman, to be emotionally attached to one woman, to be sexually given to only one woman, and that one woman is his wife. So if the man is not married, that just means he's controlling himself by God's grace to love someday that one woman who will be his wife. Gentiles in the first century would have found this qualification absolutely repugnant, just ridiculous. Probably something like France. Um, There's no big deal having a mistress. Why are you all upset about that? The Jews also in the first century would have found this to be 
uh, stifling because they had the easiest, uh, you know, uh, terms for divorce around. Uh, now, let me talk to you a little bit about how we can cultivate this kind of sexual, moral loyalty to one woman who is our wife. Number one, can I give you just a few things here? Number one, feed your heart and mind with God's will for sexual purity and pleasure. Meaning, um, tell yourself always what his design is. Sexual activity with only one woman in the context of marriage. That's God's will. That's what he has. That's what he has prescribed um, for us. You need to tell yourself that all the time because everything else around you, and in fact, even indwelling sin in you, will tell you otherwise. It will try to erase the line, make it a dotted line. And so you must tell yourself all the time, God drew a line, he drew a circle, and in that circle there is sexual life with a woman, and she, my wife. And you need to tell yourself that all of the time. Um, if you don't, you'll get ideas for other things. Second thing, fight at the level of your desires. Fight at the level of your desires, your passions. Fight against lust inwardly. Fight at the heart level. Listen, guys, learn to say no to your wayward inward desires. That's the first step because that's where our feet first start to wander away, is it not? And if you can say no to your heart's desires that are sinful, if you can say no there, if an actual temptress physically stands before you, you have a much better chance of saying no because you've already been telling yourself no all the time. If you can't say no and if you are not saying no to your inward wayward desires, what's going to happen when the temptress comes? If you think you can say no then, you're a fool. You won't. Third, put distance between you and sexual enticements that are outside your marriage. Proverbs 7. I was looking out the window and I noticed among the youths a young man lacking sense. He took the way to her house. The adulteress. He took the path that made him go right by her house. What an idiot. Don't go there. Don't move yourself closer to sexual enticement. That's not your wife. So tell yourself what God's will is for sexual purity, number one. Number two, fight inwardly. Number three, put distance between you and sexual enticement outside your marriage. What happens, though, if all of a sudden... You didn't see it coming, and it's just there. I have, uh, you know, Massimo, our, our um, missionary in Italy. He and I are, every week, he sends me, like, an accountability report for, for purity. This is something we've done ever since he's been, like, 19. Um, in Italy, when I've been there with him, we'll be walking to go someplace, and he'll say, let's not go this way, let's go this way. And I'll say, why? He said, because there's a, there's like a Walgreens over there, and in their window is, is full frontal nudity of, of women. Advertising lotion, advertising toothpaste, advertising oil for your car. They use sex to sell everything. And, and there are times in certain cultures and in certain situations where all of a sudden you are right in front. What do you do then? That's, this is the fourth thing. Run. 
Flee sexual sin, right? The godly man is a runner. The godly man is a runner. Do you know, you know who you need to be like? You need to be like Joseph in Potiphar's house. Every day she kept tempting him. And he couldn't be away from it enough. A godly man is not one who strolls around sexual enticement. Is not a man who meanders around sexual enticement outside of marriage. Flee it. And lastly, number five, pursue your wife if you got one. Study your wife. Fill your mind with her. Fill your mind with her love. Proverbs 5.19, satisfy yourself with her love for you. Proverbs 5.19, okay, husband of one wife. Temperate, verse 3, the rest go quicker. Temperate, some see uh, here the words temperate, prudent, and respectable. The next three is linked together. Uh, Certainly the the temperate and prudent together go together. Um, it, It means to be not easily carried away spiritually into extremes not being carried away spiritually into extremes. That, and that can happen in a number of ways. Not being carried away into extreme error or false teaching. Not being carried away easily towards trends that are foolish. Um, not being carried away quickly or extremely to sinful behavior. It's a man who is not given to excess. Okay, He's moderate. He's watchful so that he doesn't jump the gun into error. It's a mental self-control. It's an emotional self-control. It's inward control of self. It it can express itself in doctrine. It's doctrinal self-control so that you don't run after theological extremes or methodological trends that are foolish. Um, It's being so inwardly like anchored. It's like you've got um, maybe a chain or a, a, a bond around your ankle and it's about... 12 inches long and a stake down into the ground. You're not going to wander off far. You're not going to go to the edges. You're going to stay pretty much in one spot. And the place that does that for you, that helps keep you anchored down, is the truth of God's word. So you're temperate. You're not going to be wandering off into questionable arenas. Another word to put down, or another way to describe this is maybe a self-mastery. An elder is a man who needs to have mastered himself or is mastering himself. A way to measure that kind of mastery is how swept up can you be by faddish trends, faddish authors, faddish movements. The word prudent is very similar. It's probably translated, I think, in the ESV as self-control. Is that right? Is that what you see in yours? Uh, Temperate, these two are synonyms. They're practically the same type of idea. He rules over his impulses rather than being ruled by impulses. Uh, Titus 1.8 uses it. And in there, in, in the, it's very interesting. I don't know why the NAS does this at times, but it does. And, and so does the ESV in all translations do. It takes the same word in Titus 1.8 and translates it sensible. And it's the word sensible in Titus 1.8.2.2 and 2.25. Um, so watch these kinds of impulses. You've got all kinds of different impulses in you. You have fleshly, worldly, sinful impulses that are just a part of your mixed creation inside. Okay? Uh, You need to watch out for those. But you also just have creaturely impulses like you're hungry. That's not necessarily sinful. 
You have ideological impulses. You think about things that draw you, that entice you, that make you think, that, that work you up quickly. Maybe uh, the political thing makes you go, ah, you just, your, your ideological impulses start running. This is a man who um, has control over those kinds of things. Um, one commentator says, how shall I be able to rule other, over others if I have not full power and command of myself? He goes on to say this, and this is very true. Leaders are often left for considerable periods unsupervised. So who's going to control you if nobody else is watching? That's going to be the life of a, of a pastor elder. You're going to be sitting in a chair in front of your computer for a long time. You need to have self-control. You need to be sensible. You need to be prudent, but you need to be able to supervise yourself well. Um, you're still a, a man of flesh and blood and uh, indwelling sin with emotions and passions like everybody else, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, and you need to be exemplary in your self-control. Next word, respectable. Out of the first three terms, this one's probably the most external. Uh, prudent or, or temperate is uh, a very inward thing. Uh, prudent is inward or self-control is inward but now how those things manifest themselves and come out makes a man respectable respectable is maybe perhaps what others conclude about a man who is temperate and prudent respectable means having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration that's what we do we admire somebody because there's qualities about them that make them respectable um, it's an expression of high regard for somebody else. And it probably includes the idea built into it of, of well-ordered living. There's something re respectable. There's something admirable about a well-ordered life. A well-ordered or self-disciplined life, a temperate life, a, a self-controlled life, is one that people look at and they go, ah, that's, that's respectable. There's high regard for that. What would be the opposite? Think of the opposite. A disorderly living. Just no rhyme or reason to what a guy does. He's, there's no discipline. He's not disciplined. He's not tempered. He's not controlled himself. Nobody stops and goes, oh, don't you admire that? That's not respectable. An elder must be respectable. Next word, hospitality. In the first century... Um, in the first century, uh, this was taken primarily as showing hospitality to Christian strangers, not just your Christian friends at church. Okay? The meaning is rooted in the first century spread of the gospel. In fact, I've just done some um, research on this and looking. First Timothy was written about the same time that Titus was written, which was about A.D. 65. So just for context, Paul is released from prison at the end of Acts in A.D. 61 or so, right around that time. We have about a four-year period of time where we really don't have any track of where Paul's been until Titus is written when he comes across the island of Crete with Titus and then goes to Ephesus with Timothy. It's a mess at the church that he planted. He leaves, goes to Macedonia, and he writes this letter, and he writes Titus, AD 65. Do you know what happened in AD 64? Nero burns Rome. And by the end of AD 64... He can't satisfy the other leaders around him that he didn't do it. 
And so he puts the blame on whom? The Christians. And an onslaught of persecution comes against them. In fact, many of the names mentioned in Romans 16 that Paul knows in the church, and he wrote to nine years prior to that, are probably martyred. So Paul has come back to the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, and he made his way to Ephesus. And in, um, he would be aware, he would have known that this has happened, that Christians are being persecuted in ways that uh, were vicious by Rome, of all places, the capital of the empire. And so Christians at this point are running. They're, they're fleeing. So now you're an elder. And some Christian from Rome comes to your house. Can I stay with you? No. I don't have room for you. This is an inconvenience. You can't. No. I mean, how does that look? So this was a hospitality. It, it, it literally, the word means stranger lover. I love you even though you're a stranger to me. And it was primarily a Christian stranger, a brother that you loved brother in Christ. So the elder's home, he was to gladly receive those who had been scattered because of persecution. His home was to be a retreat for the fleeing, preaching Christian stranger. You can read uh, Third John is, has that in there about that. It'd um, be really good to read about Gaius versus, is it, who's the, who's the bad guy? Is it Demetrius? And somebody can look on that. Um, Third John. Um, and so the idea here is the elder is to be exemplary in his, um, in this using his own resources selflessly so that the whole church could also be that way. Write down Romans 12, 13. Romans 12, 13, we are all to be hospitable. Hebrews 13, 2 is very important. We are all to be hospitable. 1 Peter 4, 9, we are to all be hospitable. And so the elder is to be an example of hospitality for the rest of the church. And so as an elder, um, look, we're not living in that day where Christians are on the run. But all the more our homes as elders need to be an important tool in caring for Christians. Everything that a man possesses, he should use to share and give away to others so that they may benefit spiritually. And so the home for the elder is one of the favorite tools that he loves to use to help and care for others. And then next, at the end of verse 2, you have this, able to teach. This is not a character quality. It is a skill. It is something the man is able to do, not what he is. So why is a skill embedded here within a list of character qualities? What does that reveal about what God thinks about this skill? I think that's interesting to think about. The place that God put it is not over there someplace in a list of skills separate from the list of character qualifications. But what it reveals here is that this skill is embedded in character quality. It reveals that God doesn't want this skill disconnected from godliness. It's not enough for the man just to have profound biblical knowledge. And it's not enough to have tremendous aptitude to impart that knowledge in an understandable way. But the teaching elder must be godly in that, must be qualified in character for that. 
In fact, I think this is why this is the only qualification that it's actually commanded against in other places, in another place where? James chapter three, verse one, let not many of you become what? Teachers. There's a stricter judgment. There's actually an admonition against, to the church, against, look, don't let everybody run towards this. Not because it's a character. Could you imagine the New Testament someplace else saying, let not many of you become respectable. That doesn't make sense. Of course not. But this is a skill, and so it can actually be commanded against because God's concerned that that the, the one who does teach has good character. To be able to teach is not to be able to cause a truth dump to occur on somebody's lawn, right? Or in somebody's lap. Shepherds need to be able to impart the meaning of God's word to the sheep in an understandable, clear way. Now, um, that doesn't mean that every elder needs to be able to stand up and preach from the pulpit. Um, There's ways that Tom Angstead can teach in a one-on-one discipleship setting that I cannot. I I don't even, I can't. He has this ability to just teach in that setting that I do not excel at. Um, And he may have more trouble from a pulpit than I do. But all elders need to be able to teach at some level. Um, Not all teachers in the church will be qualified shepherds. I hope you noticed that already, that there are a lot of people who teach in the church, uh, your children and the children in this church. But that doesn't, by the fact that they teach, that doesn't mean that they're an elder. But the other way must be true. If you're an elder, what? You must be able to teach. So just because you're a teacher, that doesn't mean you're an elder. But if you are an elder, you must be a what? A teacher. Okay? Titus 1.9 tells you what that teaching looks like. Listen to this. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to, the elder, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You're going to do a very positive kind of thing with the word of God when you teach. You're going to be exhorting believers with sound teaching. Here's the way that we are to live our lives. And you're going to be doing your teaching to refute those who contradict. You're not going to contradict God's word in this church family. I refute you with this teaching. Okay? Now we're on to verse 3. Not addicted to wine. It literally means not alongside wine. The man who is next to wine or beer all of the time shouldn't be an elder. Now, I hope you have noticed here, even already thinking of it that way, that this is actually a higher standard than drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 in the body is for all Christians, right? Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Okay? To be alongside wine, though, is not necessarily automatically mean that you're drunk. You just can't be alongside it. Now, the guy who's alongside it all the time very often probably doesn't have self-control and is perhaps drunk. Um, But what it means is that an elder can't be known as a man who is always where the booze is. That's just not helpful for the body. He can't have a reputation as... A drinker. Can you imagine people saying, hey, where's the wine? Oh, it's over there by the elder. Um, Hey, have you seen the elder? Yeah, he's over there by the wine. I mean, you just can't be that way. The command to the body is don't be drunk. But this is a higher, tighter standard for the elders. Don't let alcohol be associated with you all the time. 
And also this, it, it doesn't mean abstinence. Okay? It's important to understand that too. It doesn't mean abstinence. There's space between abstinence and don't be alongside it. And if an elder chooses to be anywhere with alcohol, it needs to be between there. <clears throat> abstinence, but I'm not going to be always alongside it. And that requires a lot of self-control. Okay? A lot of self-control. There needs to be respectable behavior with this. By the way, this qualification is in all three lists. It's in both the elder qualifications and it's in the deacon list. In fact, it's for the deacon and for the wife of the deacon. With the idea of the word temperate there for her. Um, let's quickly turn over to 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. Paul says to Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Um, how should we view that? Listen, let me tell you how not to view that. That is not an endorsement to social drinking. That is not an endorsement. That is not what is going on there at all, okay? It's not a command to drink socially. Uh, rather, in Paul's day, I mean, what was it? If Timothy, I mean, if you could think about the things that Timothy, one time we'll have a conversation about this. Everything that Timothy has to do in this church, Paul probably came in, Paul came in and found the church being influenced by false teachers. He kicks two guys out in chapter one, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They're probably elders. And he leaves Timothy to do the rest of it. Do you know what that would do to my stomach? Every day. Um, if Paul had times, guess what he would have said in 523? Okay? Uh, probably. Um, so it was a more of a medicinal type of thing. But the idea here is self-control. And something to think about carefully here is the perceptions. Remember the imperfect, imperfect perceptions that others have? An elder really needs to think carefully about the perceptions that others have concerning, and you need to think about this too, if God would ever move you towards eldering one day. Um, you need to think carefully about the perceptions that others will have concerning your use of alcohol. Um, you can't control how they perceive your drinking. You can't. You just can't. That's not, that doesn't mean never do it. It just means you need to understand this. Can you imagine another man? Here, here's the thing that scares me the most about it. If, if a man that I don't even know in his life, or maybe I do know, and I do know that he's got issues with the way that he handles alcohol, if he sees me using alcohol, did he just put an equal sign between his use of alcohol and mine? I can't control that. I need to think very careful. He, he's thoughtless about it, and he just justified himself in his use of it because he saw an elder. I have to be really, really careful. So much to think about on this. Next, verse 3. Not pugnacious. It means not a striker. Not one who is ready to settle a conflict with violence or physical intimidation. Now, it's difficult probably for you to imagine yourself ever escalating to such a physical expression like this. Like you would hit, actually hit somebody at church. Um, but what is the root that supports this violent fruit? That's what I want you to think about. What's the root underneath this violent fruit? What kind of man is willing to become aggressive physically? Here, let me, let me spell this out for you. This is, what, this is the man who hits somebody. Number one, he's a man who's in conflict, probably frequently. He's in disagreements, 
Perhaps he's a man who gets sinned against. Perhaps he's a man who is disregarded, he's ignored. And what I would like to say to you is welcome to eldering. You're in conflict. You're trying to solve conflicts. You are not agreed with. You are um, maybe sinned against. There are things said about you that aren't true. And you can't control it. Secondly, what kind of man is it who becomes physically aggressive? He's a man who doesn't biblically deal with that conflict. That stuff just keeps churning over in his mind again. I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they said that. That's so unfair. He's not dealing with it biblically in his mind. What kind of man is it who becomes physically aggressive? Thirdly, he's a man who's overcome with pride. How dare they disagree with me? Don't they know who I am? I'm an elder. And all of that makes the man a ticking time bomb. He's an explosive, unstable cocktail of violence. You might hear from that kind of man some kind of first, a veiled threat. Some kind of sarcasm. (laughs) Was he serious? Or you might hear him raise his voice and he starts yelling. But eventually you're going to need to duck a swing from that guy or he's going to push. And I want you to think about this. Think about how one loss of self-control that way finishes a man in the church as an elder. Look, you can, you can lack gentleness in your words once, twice, three times over the course of your life, right? And, talk to, say, and, and an elder has to go back and say, I, I, will you, would you forgive me? I was, I was impatient in the way that I spoke with you. And what's the church going to do? Absolutely. But you go to a man and say, I'm really sorry that I pushed you down to the ground. Will you forgive me? Probably get forgiven, but how are the sheep going to feel around that shepherd? He's done. He's just done. So you need to think, if you think the question to ask yourself is, am I a striker? Nope, nothing to see here. That's the wrong thing to ask. The question is, what do I do after an injustice is committed against me? Um, What do I do when I'm sinned against? What do I do after I'm in conflict? What do I do when I'm disagreed with? Because that's where the, the root of the violent fruit is. Do you understand? Gentle is the next word. It means kind. It means gracious. It means mild, fair, tolerant, considerate, forbearing. This is different than our English word for gentle. It's hard to use, pick the right word for it. In our minds, gentle means you probably think of a of a mother holding your baby, stroking the baby gently. There's tenderness, there's softness to the word. That's not necessarily the idea here. It's the idea of being considerate, uh, considerate, tolerant, forbearing, moderate. One who can be reasoned with. The elder is gentle in the sense that he can be reasoned with. It's contrasted with a man who operates with a strict justice. I'm just going to strictly lay down the law. Now, I heard what you said, and here's the rule. Just quick about strict justice. Unduly rigorous. That's the opposite. So rather than being strict to dispense justice at every moment, the minute a man hears whatever was going on, this man is gentle, meaning that he's reasonable. 
in the treatment of others. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. We, we need to get some more, we need to do a little bit more research on what happened here. I'm not going to just declare an edict yet. Wait a minute. It's, it's that idea of a gentle in that kind of a situation. Multiple cases need to be considered here. Uh, the, the, the elder needs to be the type of guy who can say, wait a minute, the, the situation right in front of me right now as it first appears might not be actually the way that it is in totality. I need to, I need to be moderate here. I need to be reasonable. I need to be gentle in that sense. Um, that means that while you're in your fact-finding stages, you're going, there's going to be a sense in which some injustices have to continue to be um, endured, perhaps, by some. Uh, but it's very important, Proverbs 18.17, to not just act right away. It, Proverbs 18.17, the first to plead his case seems right. So I'm going to just you know, lay down the law, because what he said is right. Well, the last part of 18.17 says, until another man comes and examines him. It takes some time to get to the bottom of what's going on. You need to be gentle enough to do that. Okay? Um, next word, peaceable. Verse 3, peaceable. That means uncontentious. <laughs> this is a man who's not looking to draw lines in the sand everywhere in order to divide people. Well, you, you get on this side of that issue with me and these other three elders, and the rest of you can all go over there. That's not peaceable. That's contentious. That's being divisive against the body. Uh, rather, this is a man who desires peace between all. He's a man who can himself be made peace with. Um, among the elders and especially in the church body, peaceableness doesn't just happen on its own. You don't just wake up where there's contention and all of a sudden find that Christians are peaceable with each other again. But what can happen all on its own without any effort at all is people can divide against each other. It's just the way that our indwelling sin works in the church. And so the elder needs to be one who loves peace. He knows the path to peace. He can see the division. He can see the disunity. He can see the disagreement. And he's got a plan to get to peace. I've been down this path of peace and I know how to get there. And I'm going to help the people get to the place of peaceableness. And this is one of the main differences between the church and the world. Listen, the, the difference between the church and the world is not that we're always at peace with one another. And they're at war with each other. The difference is, when we're at war with each other, we want to make peace, right? That's the difference, and the elders are the ones who lead by example in that. The last one in verse 3 is free from the love of money. If what the man loves in his life is money, then the office of overseer will be used to advance his financial gain. He'll use his position to make money, or to steal money, or to embezzle money. Um, Think about false teachers who rake in millions. From I mean, pastoring and teaching can be a very profitable thing for men. Um, you can see that um, even at the same time that that threat existed, even in Paul's day. Uh, in chapter 6, he talks about um, there are men who suppose that um, godliness is a means of great gain. In verse 5 of chapter 6 and in verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. He's talking about false teachers. Hebrews 13.5, write that one down. You can look that up. Uh, that's important for all of the church. All of the church is exhorted to be free from the love of money, but the elders to be exemplary in this character issue. All right, let's look at verses 4 and 5. There's a transition here uh, from what he is to what he does in his home. 
from a general everywhere kind of character quality to specific household ability. Now we're going to focus in on discipline two. The man, we've been looking at discipline one and discipline three a little bit. Now we're going to look at discipline two. The man is now measured primarily by how he provides leadership over his household. And this is an argument in verses four and five from the lesser to the greater. Let's look at it again. Uh, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's an argument from his own household to God's household. It's an argument from his leadership over some to his leadership over many. It's an argument from the submission of a few people under his leadership to the, uh, to the submission of a lot of people under his leadership. And let's start with the word manages in verse 4. He needs to manage. That means literally to stand before. It's to superintend over uh, the family. There's two components involved in this. One is authority and one is nearness. He has authority, so he's standing over, but he has to be near. He has to be present. He's not exercising authority from afar. Um, so you need to hold those two things in check with each other. It's not authority that is absent or removed um, from watchful care. And it's also not about just being there and being present, but not having any authority. Listen, there are some dads who want to be near, but they don't want to be the guy in charge. And so the wife has to pick it up. That is not the idea. And there are some dads who distort it the other way. They're just the rule on high, and they're sitting over and they're a lofty, lazy boy, and they're just uttering edicts, and they're not involved or engaged in the lives of anybody in their family. It can't be either of those. You've got to be near, and you've got to be near with authority. Guys, there's no doubt, there needs to be no doubt in your mind, and I'm not trying to put you on a power trip. I'm not trying to do that at all. There needs to be no doubt in your mind that God has given you authority in your home. And you will be held accountable for it. Um, don't think that you can just be present and be the super cool dad who's present. You've got to be the one who's making the decisions and, and making uh, some leadership decisions in your family. Bless your wife. Bless your children. Don't be a jerk, but be the one who is the authority. Um, and you need to manage well his own household. One who manages his own household well. The word well means aesthetically good authority good and aesthetically pleasing. There's a beauty, there's an attractiveness to this management. His management is effective and it's done in such a way that it's actually appealing. That's authority that's near, that's attractive. I like to watch that. I want to I be around that guy who's managing his children. He does it well. He does it splendidly. And what is the evidence that he's managing his household well? Here it is, guys. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. The children, listen, um, this might be tricky at first sight, so let me just spell this out a little bit, what, what it means to keep his children under control with all dignity. Guys, it means that your children need to be kept under control. <laughs> so it means what it says. If you've got little ones at home, your children need to be kept under control. And an elder needs to be exemplary in that. Quick question, yeah, please. On the... Husband of one wife, you mentioned that yeah. for a man who's single but is living by that. Yeah. For this one, if a man does not have children yet, yeah. maybe married but doesn't have children, Great. there. Yeah, what do you do in a situation like that? So a guy comes on the elder board, he doesn't have any kids, perhaps, and then all of a sudden he starts having kids. It's like with any other elder qualification. 
Um, he hasn't been tested in that. He certainly has probably ideas about what parenting is. He better have ideas. <laughs> and you'd want to have those kinds of conversations. Um, but what, it's like any of the other qualifications. You start just continuing to measure the man in this arena. And you watch his, his parenting. Um, and you watch it through all the different seasons of life. Um, when you, uh, you don't know what it's like to parent a teenager, right? Personally, yourself. Because you don't. So, but what do you do? We just keep watching your life. And when they become teenagers, you figure it out. And you make ad- adjustments as you go. So you're always entering into new arenas of testing, even as an elder in situations. Um, so you just keep watching the man in that. Um, otherwise... Because he doesn't have children and now he does, do you make him not be an elder for a while? Or the other thought would be, well, you just don't let a man become, you just don't let men become elders except for the men who have already done this and they're finished with it. Well, we don't treat any of the other qualifications that way, that they've already proven and they're done with that. And it's, you have to live it out before people. So um, you just want to keep watching a man. Um, to keep your children under control means that they need to be in submission. It means that they line up under you. The opposite of it would be children running all over the place in all different directions, and dad is chasing after them. The idea is that you're, there is a, a clear expectation, and the child is in um, line with the dad. And it needs to be done with all dignity. Listen, there is a way to keep children under control that is not dignified. It's wrong. It's sinful, it's arrogant, and it's not managing well. But there is a way to keep your children in con- under control in a way that is dignified. Okay? And um, if I have a concern for anything, I'm so glad we did our parent conference recently. If, if I have a concern personally as an elder for our church, when you saw on Easter Sunday all those little ones come down. Okay? if I have a concern for anything for our men is that there will be men in our church right now by the way that they are parenting that they will actually disqualify themselves from eldering one day because they don't think they need to keep their children under control now. Do you understand what I just said? If you don't think you have to be dad, if you don't think that you're the one who's in authority, if you think there's something noble about letting your little child exercise their free spirit, if you think that's good, you're disqualifying yourself from the office of overseer to come. There will come a day when you might even have a desire for it, but the men around you, their perception of you will be your kids are completely out of control. Guys, you've got to take charge. And again, do it well. Do it with dignity. There's a way to do that. And if you want help, approach the elders. We'd give anything to tell you what not to do. I can tell you what not to do. And I'll be honest with you, I, I come to the elders at different seasons in my life, and I tell them of parenting, I'm in this season right now. I just want you to know it, and I need your prayers. I just try to keep it open and on the table with them so that they can see that. The argument from the lesser to the greater, I'm going to speed up a little bit here. If a man doesn't know how to do this, how's he going to take care of the church? Why would anybody want to give you more spiritual leadership over people if the spiritual leadership you're exercising in your home isn't effective? That would be a disaster. Would any of you hire somebody? Would any of you promote somebody in your business? Jerry gives somebody five pools to take care of, and he's cruddy with it, but Jerry promotes him to take over the whole business. I mean, we'd all go, Jerry, we need to have a conversation here about your, the way you're thinking, right? So it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. I'll summarize the last two this way in verses 6 and 7. 
The devil is mentioned in both. The devil is mentioned in both. Paul has a list of character qualifications for elders in the church, and in the last two, he mentions the devil. What does that tell you? The enemy of our Savior and of his church knows what God is doing, and he is setting traps, and he is setting snares for men out there, young converts, so that they'll fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil, and they're setting snares for the one who doesn't have a good representation outside the church. The devil is setting traps all over the place for men so that they'll go out and in their foolishness or in their youthfulness fall into those traps and therefore not be able to be qualified to lead the church. The devil knows. If the Holy Spirit is making elders, overseers, Acts 20, 28, the devil is doing everything he can to not make that happen. Okay? We could say a lot more about that. This is not an exhaustive list, as if every single thing has been thought of here. Paul could not list every possible character qualification. There need to be other passages you turn to. It's important to think of like First Peter five, where Paul or Peter's talking about shepherding there. Um, this is not a man who's qualified for uh, eldering. These are the other considerations at the end. Um, if a man has been a, on the board of five different companies over the course of his life, that does not mean that that man knows how to sit on the board of elders in a church. I know that's the way a lot of the way the churches think and the world thinks, but that doesn't mean he knows what shepherding is. An elder is an overseer who pastors, who shepherds people. Because you sat on a board of a, of a Fortune 500 company doesn't mean you know how to pastor people. It may mean that you know how to make really good decisions that are, that are uh, fruitful for financial gain, that are prudent even for that, but it doesn't mean that you know how to pastor people. And one other thought to think about, this is from one church to the next church to the next church to the next church. All these qualifications sit over all of them, but just because one guy is made a pastor here doesn't mean that he is qualified to be a pastor there. What if this church is brand new? What if this church is in the tribe of a mountain in Papua New Guinea in 10 years when there's a Lord willing a church? Does that mean that because he's declared an elder there that he should be an elder at Grace Bible Church? Does it mean that Scott should leave now and go be an elder in a, over a tribe in Mibu? There's probably some things he needs to catch up on and get around the corner on, right? Um, churches are at different places, at different stages. One set of qualifications, they must measure them within their own body. And that doesn't mean that, it, well, I, I was a pastor at Camelback, so I'm just automatically a pastor here now, aren't I? That's not the way we treated it. When I came 13 years ago, they had to assess me. And they spent a long time doing that. So, lots of other things we could say. Anything, last question? We're right at 9.15. Sorry, guys, this went longer than I thought. Any questions? Yeah, Kyle. Are there things that, that permanently disqualify you from being elder? Yeah, I think, I think so. There can be. I think it, it, probably any number one of these, it, depending on the extreme to which it's done, but if you write down Proverbs 6 and look at what happens when a man commits adultery, um, uh, it says at the end there that his reproach will not be blotted out. That doesn't mean that God doesn't forgive. But what it means is the man of the other woman, the husband of the other woman, he'll, there will always be a reproach in his eye in the community on that guy. 
how does that guy recover from adultery? I think adultery is one of those things that, um, if committed by a man who is an elder, is 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 disqualifying. How does he recover from that? Um, now, if a man before he's an elder commits adultery when he's an unbeliever, if he commits adultery as a young Christian, and it's 25 years later, and there's been track record to prove, churches need to make their decisions based on those things on that case. And I'm not saying that's an automatic yes. I'm not saying it's an automatic no. I'm saying you got to measure it. But if an elder commits <coughs> adultery, how do you get past that reproach? I don't know. What if it's the other way around? It, meaning what? She's the adulteress. Oh, the wife? Yeah. Well, then, then... Does that disqualify him? You have to do a lot of investigation because if he's the head of his wife and he, you have to figure out the, uh, levels of complicit, uh, were there ways in which he wasn't caring well for his wife? Maybe there wasn't. Maybe, maybe he was completely blameless. I don't know. But I think you're probably, in, in certain situations, if you're going to attract more questions about something so that the elders are just constantly spending time answering the questions and trying, no, no, it's not that. It's, it's actually this, and it takes you three pages to explain why, then you're probably, just, just give this man a break. Let's, let's let him step out of the office, not saying he's necessarily disqualified, but let's give him a break and let's care for him. Let's let him labor in other fruitful ways in the body. And um, maybe God will lead in such a way that it reveals to be otherwise. I don't know. Those are things that I don't want to make a, uh, uh, I don't want to have my finger on the trigger so quick to say, absolutely always no, but I'm very hesitant to um, try to justify a man in that position as well. Too. Good questions. Anything else, guys? a lifetime appointment depending on or with a caveat of accountability yeah um, we don't do terms here of, I've, I've been in churches where um, we did uh, like a four year term and then you stepped out of the office uh, we operate uh, I don't think the New Testament sets up anything like that I suppose the church has freedom to put that in um, but yeah we base it on lifetime appointment as long as a man maintains himself which is one of the reasons why we evaluate each other every other year again so that we're all in an ongoing evaluation, so that at any point we can say, you know, personally, I, I'm concerned about my qualification, and I need to take a break. Or I'm concerned about my season of life. Or the elders can say, yeah, man, we're concerned about where you're at, and you need to take a break, or we need to remove you from office, or whatever. Um, my concern with terms, term limits for elders, is it becomes the way that an elder board takes care of a problem man. He's in year two of his eldering, and you're like, ah, two years ago we made a mistake. That's okay. We'll just wait two more years, and he'll be gone. That's not the way to deal with a problem in a man. But that's the way people do it, and it's not helpful. Why don't we pray, and then if any of you want to stay and ask questions, we can do that. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this um, section of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to... Um, live in accordance with it and to be thoughtful and careful. Lord, I pray for the men of Grace Bible Church so that you would um, bless their pursuit of you in discipline one, two, and three. And that, Father, that you would do it just simply for their own sake, for your glory in their own lives, that their wives and their children would be blessed, that the body of Christ would be blessed by men who are disciplined in character and disciplined in the pursuit of you and, and the love of, of the saints. 
I pray, God, that you would gain much glory from that. But I also pray, Lord, that you would bless it so that some men might become elders in time. And so, Lord, this ministry of build is very, very important in this church because it helps to set men on a trajectory, Lord willing, if you bless it as such, to, to look toward the office and to be practicing these things. Lord, a young man who's 20 years old, who's working on these things and does so for eight years, 10 years, by the age of 30, could very quickly and very um, surely in the eyes of others around him be elder qualified. Lord, we um, do not want to be in a hurry to make a man an elder, but we want to be in a hurry to make a man disciplined in these things. Help us and guide us in this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.